the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. And behind the controls, my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. For those of you who don't know the show, the show's in a couple of different parts. The first part of the show, ordinarily we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion, and today we're going to have on Frank Scatura, who's president of one of our favorite organizations, the Grant Memorial Association, and he's got a book out, Grant Reconsidered. It's very interesting points of view in that, and learned a lot that I, I really didn't know about. Now, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, Michael, where do they send us a question? You can reach us with questions about estate planning and elder law at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors, Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, at gmail.com. And also each week, Kevin McCullough, you know, asks one of the questions by our audience on his show for the benefit of his listeners. So you can also, you know, some of your questions will be asked and be heard on the Kevin McCullough show, which we plays Monday through Friday on some of the stations that we're you know, on right now. Now, again, the Grant Monument Association, you know, U.S. Grant perception in history, I think, has changed dramatically over the years. When I went to, to grammar school, U.S. Grant was not considered much of a general. He was, you know, like he just had overwhelming numbers and overran the con Confederacy with overwhelming numbers. He was a butcher, so forth and so on. He wasn't a, a general. Now, in recent years, different generals and different historians have said, hey, Grant was a great general. He had a great perception of the, the war, you know, as a whole, the, the, the idea of how the war should be conducted as opposed to just fighting a battle here and there. So Grant's reputation as a general has gone up considerably, I would say, in the last 50, 60 years. And now I think a lot of historians, we've had, you know, a few on, a lot of historians are saying now that Grant was presidency was probably a lot more successful than 
the media at the time, the newspapers at the time, would lead you to believe. So Frank Scatoro is part of that movement to get Grant recognized as, you know, a, 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 an exceptional man, obviously, a good president, great general, and somebody who changed the face of the country. You know, Grant cared about freedom, civil rights, and he did the best he could under the circumstances to, to, to follow the rules of the Constitution and its constitutional amendments. In any event, we're going to take a short break, and at the end of the break, we'll listen to Kevin McCullough. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Hi, Kevin McCullough. You know, every week we get uh, up close and personal with Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan, and he has agreed to answer one of your questions. And, uh, Mike, this week's question comes from uh, Liz from Flushing. She said, Mr. Connors, what should I do with my logins and passwords to my online baking and other sites with personal info so someone can cancel them out when I die should they be listed in my will? Odd question, Mike. I've never seen anything like it before. What do you tell them? No, but it's one of those things that's occurring more and more. The, answer the second part of the question first. No, do not put it in your will, because if we need to file the will, that's public record, and anybody can see the information that's in the will. You know, it's open to the public. So, no, do not put personal information like that. Do not put your Social Security number in the will. You never know who's out there scanning documents. The other thing is try to put a list together where your executor, whoever your executor is going to be, knows where the list is, and they have your passwords and your PIN numbers and things like that and, and can work from there, and your power of attorney. 
Sounds uh, pretty logical, but they may need some help setting it all up. And, friends, that's why you should call Connors & Sullivan, 718-751-6549, 718-751-6549. And send your questions to uh, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. He'll answer them Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570, The Mission, and Saturday nights at 6 and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now we have an old friend of the show, Frank Scatoro, who's president of the Grant Monument Association, and he has an extraordinary book out. You know, a quick read, but Grant Reconsidered. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay. Now... Let me ask you something. How did you first get interested in, in U.S. Grant? Well, when my parents bought me an encyclopedia set, or I should say they bought the family an encyclopedia set when I was seven years old, I went through it, every page of it, from A to Z. I got caught up in the P volume on the president's uh, article, a piece on all of the then 39 presidents. And from that moment on, devoured everything I could on the presidency. That was my portal into becoming more broadly interested in U.S. history. And the more I read about the presidents, uh, the more several of them really stuck out in my mind as uh, distinctively uh, important and maybe not appreciated the way uh, they should have been appreciated. And by, say, seventh or eighth grade, uh, Grant uh, had uh, been, become one of those presidents who garnered that particular sense of, uh, of interest. Um, the more I read about him, and it was actually his presidency, even before his general that I delved into in length, the more I read about his presidency, the more I did not understand uh, the traditional condemnation that was given to his presidency. Uh, then several years later, I found myself dorming a few blocks away from Grant's tomb when I was a student at Columbia University. I offered my services at that point to the National Park Service to be basically a tour guide, but I wound up encountering much more than that because the monument was in really bad shape at the time. And so what started out as strictly a scholarly interest in Grant 
developed into this historic preservationist endeavor that uh, still goes on to this day. Well, let's step back a second. Now, most people, most books written about Grant usually is about Grant as a general. And and I think the perception of, of Grant as a general has even changed since I was a boy till today. Because when I was a boy, I, I think the general perception by people who were somewhat involved in history was that Grant was just, you know, he was a butcher. He just went in and he was he overpowered Robert E. Lee. And I think now people are starting to respect the fact that he was a brilliant general. And, and the same thing now with, with his presidency. I think, again, everybody considered him the, one of the worst presidents in the history of the United States. And what's your perception right now? What's, what's the idea behind your book? Yeah, well, President Grant reconsidered is a reassessment of Grant's presidency. And it's true that his military career was also uh, – misunderstood for a good many years and was a victim of uh, its own you know, series of hatchet jobs by historians. Uh, the presidency as well uh, was a victim of the same phenomenon that you sometimes hear discussion of it today, the myth of the lost cause that followed a generation after the Civil War when you had a historical and frankly also a literary and cultural movement that tried to elevate the Confederacy, that glorified the Confederacy, that whitewashed the issue of slavery, race, emancipation, all those things that would ennoble the Civil War, but also Reconstruction itself. And then you had the Dunning School in the early 20th century that emerged. In fact, it emerged, it was really championed by professors at Columbia University. That's uh, where William Archibald Dunning taught. And this component, if we want to call it that, of the myth of the lost cause, deemed Reconstruction to be pretty much the worst policy catastrophe in American history. And it employed a theory of history that was nothing short of racialist. It held that the race that had been emancipated from slavery was ill-equipped to exercise the rights, the benefits of citizenship, and it excoriated those who were responsible for those developments after the Civil War. When you look at the Civil War Reconstruction period, it was in many ways a second founding. It was the most profound constitutional moment that our country had after the initial founding itself. And in fact, if you look at uh, these two great milestones of American government of just the formation of the system that we have today. In the founding period, there are, there's a legion of uh, figures who are celebrated and remembered for their political contributions. If you look at the political figures during the founding era, it's like take your pick between Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Adams, Hamilton, Ben Franklin, and the list goes on. For the 12 years of the Civil War, or excuse me, for the uh, really, uh, or like 16 years from the onset of the Civil War to what's often recognized as the end of Reconstruction, for that whole period, there is precisely one political figure who is well-remembered, and that was Abraham Lincoln. And of course, he was someone who only served that first four years of that 
16-year period. And one of the really astonishing things and a blight on this country, uh, just as the scourge of Jim Crow segregation was a blight on this country, is what we did, uh, What first of all, what was done with the constitutional innovation of equality uh, that was reflected uh, in the most profound changes to the constitutional architecture that we've had since the initial founding of our country. We consider the 13th Amendment, which freed the slaves. Uh, that was enabled by Grant's military victory. Then you have the 14th Amendment that, among many other things, guarantees the equal protection of the laws. Well, that was something that Grant, as president, worked to enforce, enacting, assigning into law uh, the first legislation to actually enforce the 14th Amendment. And then there's the 15th Amendment, which banned racial discrimination in voting. The ratification of that amendment was something that was decisively brought about uh, by Grant's leadership. Uh, Even though presidents don't have a formal constitutional role in uh, constitutional amendment, of course, it occurs typically by uh, Congress and then state legislatures acting. There are several presidents who've used their influence uh, and, of course, Lincoln with the 13th Amendment is a great example of that. Well, you also have Grant with the 15th Amendment. When you consider the legal architecture that was put in place, five enforcement acts, the creation of the Justice Department to enforce civil rights, and even during Grant's second term, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 that banned racial discrimination and various modes of public accommodations and transportation you have a, a massive array of, uh, of achievements here that the country eventually went back on. Now, by the mid to late 1870s, there was already a lot of pressure to go back on Reconstruction. Uh, Grant intervened in the South uh, with military force on a number of occasions, and less noted by historians also, he, he used the legal arm of the government uh, the Justice Department, he used, he employed federal marshals to protect the voting rights of the newly enfranchised slaves and also their white Republican allies who were very much uh, afflicted uh, in the former Confederate states. I mean, this is a, a reason that an otherwise reluctant Grant agreed to run for the presidency in 1868 because he thought that these former slaves and what he called union men needed protection. He saw the violence that occurred during the South, uh, in, in the South during the years of Andrew Johnson's presidency when there was a reaction. Uh, there were Southern states that were trying to reinstate slavery by another name, and they had a president in the White House, Johnson, who did everything he could to encourage that process uh, while you had this horrendous dysfunction with a radical Republican uh, Congress, uh, the Congress that uh, the radical faction came to uh, put together a governing uh, coalition with moderate Republicans to stand up and try to salvage, try to consolidate into our constitutional and statutory architecture uh, these tenets of equality that really embodied the meaning of union victory. And this whole generation of leaders, 
people like Thaddeus Stevens, regardless of Steven Spielberg's noble effort to give him some recognition in the movie Lincoln, uh, John Bingham, the principal author of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, and of course, President Grant uh, have been really vilified by historians. And part of the reason why, of course, is the country having turned its back on Reconstruction, people don't understand a lot of you know, they often assume that the country was in a constant state of Jim Crow segregation after emancipation, but that wasn't the case uh, because you had these constitutional amendments, you had the right to vote, you even had this desegregation legislation on the books. But over the years, just following Reconstruction, Hayes, Rutherford Hayes, who was Grant's immediate successor, bowed to political pressure. It was not even so much as a response to the presidential electoral crisis of 1876. He was just he pledged during the, that presidential election year that he would do something like that end military intervention in the South. And when that happened, it really uh, empowered the so-called redemptionists, uh, as they became known in history, to restore white governments that would take away these uh, civil rights that had been conferred. But it took a, a good generation for that to happen. First, you had, if you look at milestones, there was a series of unfortunate Supreme Court decisions that went along with this attitude, this retreat from Reconstruction, this reaction against Reconstruction. In 1883, in the civil rights cases, the court declared the Civil Rights Act of 1875 to be unconstitutional in a ruling that the very founders of the 14th Amendment who had, the framers, I should say, of the 14th Amendment who had voted for the 1875 statute uh, found outrageous. Then you go a few years later, 1890, you have the first states that state governments, uh, first laws that state governments are passing that actually require segregation of various facilities. And then they go on through uh, literacy tests and grandfather uh, clauses and things like that uh, to take away the right to vote. You know, there are laws that on the books may not look like they're racially discriminatory, but they're administered in a way that was blatantly racially discriminatory. And politicians who dared to get themselves involved uh, faced a real political price. Uh, the Republican presidents who followed Grant between Rutherford Hayes and Benjamin Harrison did make efforts, even though they were anemic compared to Grant's own efforts, they did make efforts to uh, enforce voting rights on one level or another. Uh, Benjamin Harrison endorsed a, a federal uh, voting rights statute that was introduced by Henry Cabot Lodge that wound up going down to defeat and was not only controversial, but may have even contributed to Harrison's own defeat for re-election in 1892. And so for the 1890s into the early 20th century, you have a country, you have a federal government that has now completely abandoned Reconstruction and that comes up with this apologia to try to rationalize, to try to justify uh, what had happened during Reconstruction. Now, that's not all that happened. There was another strain 
uh, of our history that unfolded, because, of course, civil rights and race are not the only issues, even though we recognize their foundational importance. Uh, during Grant's years in the White House, you also had a civil service reform movement that was championed by Gilded Age reformers, as they like to designate themselves. Uh, you had people in this category who were a lot more literate than the machine Republicans who were governing much of the uh, country, than you know, machine Republicans who were in power, people who were you know, editors of some of the most influential uh, uh, magazines and newspapers, and people who just produced a lot of literature, uh, in many cases, were put off by the notion that they and their ilk were not in government. People like Henry Adams, who wrote a whole education of Henry Adams that is, you know, was celebrated by historians for years, but was amazingly myopic and self-serving in, in its uh, premises. Uh, you have you know, a whole bunch of people who, were see who actually sought uh, positions under the patronage system that then dominated the notion that you give government positions or positions in the civil service based upon someone's partisan record or their partisan service. Uh, and then they were rejected by the system. Then they went on to produce this literature that uh, blasted the spoils system or the patronage system as inherently corrupt. And with it came a whole body of, of literature that exaggerated the evils of the age. It employed this reckless definition of the patronage system as being synonymous with corruption. And in fact, if you're going to employ that, press, uh, uh, that uh, premise, you have to explain how previous presidents, uh, Abraham Lincoln as much as anybody else since the establishment of the Jacksonian spoil system, would somehow escape this kind of uh, criticism. Well, civil service reform was not a popular thing during the 1870s, but Grant actually did help clean shop uh, when he came into office. I mean, his, uh, it, it's often unwritten about, but there were major reforms that were brought for employees to the Treasury Department. There was a civil service commission that was created for a few years, uh, although it didn't last beyond 1875, uh, because there seemed to be little public interest in the reform. And there was also some skepticism that if you go too far and remove civil servants from political control, that they might not be that much more efficient and honest than they were under the spoil system. But something happened a few years after Grant left office. And I think during this period, it is as important to understand the divisions within the Republican Party as it is to understand the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. In 1880, when there was actually an ill-fated uh, uh, effort made to nominate Grant for a third term to the White House, the party was very much split between the stalwart faction and what was known as the half-breed faction. And these were not, not everyone belonged firmly in one camp or the other, but the stalwarts were promoting Grant, the half-breeds were promoting James Blaine, the Republican convention was deadlocked, and they came up with a dark horse 
ticket of James Garfield, who leans toward the half-breeds, and Chester Arthur as his running mate, who was a stalwart. Well, Garfield is assassinated. He is shot and then dies six months into his administration by really an insane man who happened to be an office seeker, but the real story was that the guy, Charles Guiteau, was nuts. Uh, but among his ramblings, he said, Arthur is president, I am a stalwart, and Arthur is president now, or something along those lines. And the civil service reformers very cynically tried to use that moment uh, as a way to garner support for civil service reform. And with it came, it, it evolved into the progressive movement, into this notion that a huge dimension of our government should be uh, administered this way by people who are basically divorced from political actors, divorced from what we call the patronage or the spoil system. And in, Amer in our memory, in our historical memory, Grant, regardless of the fact that he actually improved the way government service was run from what he inherited from the 1860s, he was cast with this faction of stalwarts, of spoilsmen, who were oversimplistically, and in the way that partisans often do, uh, they make generalizations that are often really sloppy, uh, trying to forget what came before trying to divorce that period from any sense of historical perspective and also coming up with uh, what would essentially is a thesis that government has been cleaned up and is now efficient and honest because of this new paradigm in government. Of course, it's ridiculous. It is something that uh, is one of the most overlooked subjects in American government is the, the function of the, uh, of the civil service or of the executive branch. But by the time we get to the early 20th century, Grant essentially is on the short end of both of these trends. It seems that he was on the wrong side of history for embracing civil rights, and it also seems he was on the wrong side of history because he was, however carelessly uh, classified uh, as a spoilsman, because he allied himself with uh, that faction of the Republican Party. Now, when you look more closely at his very political army that he needed to ensure legislative achievement, and I've mentioned to you just some of his achievements uh, in Reconstruction, but in fact, his administration saw a wide array of achievements in domestic and foreign policy uh, that includes a number of economic measures that, uh, that included the Resumption Act of 1875. That authorized a return to the gold standard by 1879, at which point the economy, which had suffered a terrible uh, a depression through much of the, of the 1870s, uh, recovered as starkly as it ever had at the end of a depression. And foreign policy grant kept the country out of international war on several occasions, perhaps more, most importantly, when he successfully resolved the Alabama claims dispute with Great Britain that arose out of the Civil War. This not only kept the country out of war with Great Britain, but it also uh, advanced the principle of international arbitration in disputes that involved weighty matters of national honor. The way this was 
uh, the way this dispute was settled through an arbitration panel at Geneva actually helped trigger a peace movement in the West, especially between uh, the U.S. and Britain, but, but elsewhere in Europe. It was a principle that would later be embodied in things like the, the Hague Tribunal, the World Court, the League of Nations, and even the United Nations. And it's one of the interesting ironies of our history that professional soldiers who come to the White House often exercise decisive leadership. And that was the case with Washington, with even Jackson for all of his faults with Grant, uh, and also with Eisenhower. And if you want peace, uh, you could do a lot worse than to have a professional soldier in the White House. But you notice when I rattle off those names that the other names I mentioned are all well-respected, except Grant was singled out. C. Van Woodward in the mid-20th century called his presidency the lowest ebb uh, there was another historian, I believe it was Thomas Bailey, who said that between Lincoln and William McKinley, we had a bunch of ordinary men except for the subordinary Grant. I mean, Grant was singled out uh, for, for this contempt, for this condemnation, and it was really a product of historians who allowed themselves to become partisans. It's not that they were consciously engaged in that process, although in some cases I think they were trying to uh, one-dimensionally cast uh, Grant as an embodiment of all of the real and imagined evils of the Gilded Age, and then to come up with a whole economic thesis of American politics uh, during the 1930s. That was the period when the two most the two really only definitive narratives of Grant's presidency came out until another book, that a much better book that came out three years ago. But it was at the height of uh, the New Deal that historians William Heseltine and Alan Nevins produced these tomes that just excoriated the Grant administration, but were largely made up of superficial Gilded Age character sketches, talking about people who had no real tie to Grant or the executive branch. They regarded Reconstruction the way the Dunning School did as this horrendous uh, mistake. And they, they wrote about the republicanism of Grant's age with all of the hostile assumptions that they carried into the capital R republicanism of their own age. And if you look at some of the really elitist rhetoric that's in these uh, histories, they talk about how men of property and intelligence, this is a phrase that they use, men of property and intelligence uh, appreciated uh, that you know, Grant's presidency was just somehow substandard. Well, if you look at this, if you look at the record more carefully, you realize that so much of uh, what was dismissed as corruption, not only wasn't corruption, but that historians saw Reconstruction itself as a corrupt experiment. And over the 76-year period between Andrew Jackson and Woodrow Wilson, there was only one president who served for two complete and consecutive terms. That was Grant. It was not an easy thing to serve eight years in the White House. If you look at the bookends of American history, uh, the period from Washington to Monroe, or you could say from Washington to Jackson, and then the last uh, 40 
years or so, uh, starting with Reagan, or maybe you can even go back to uh, FDR. Uh, it's not uncommon for presidents to be reelected and to serve at least uh, eight years or close to uh, eight years. Uh, but this was that this was this middle portion of our history was a very different period. It was a polarized period. It was a formative period. It was not easy for presidents to survive, sometimes in a literal sense, and in other cases, uh, to conclude their administration with a chance to even get another term. Uh, but Grant was there. He made this contribution during this second founding uh, of our country. He and Lincoln really helped usher in these profound changes to our government. And it's for these reasons, just summarizing him, of course, that I think he deserved a sweeping condemnation, a sweeping, excuse me, a sweeping <laughs> reconsideration, a, a, a departure from the, from the uh, condemnation that uh, the traditional consensus had uh, afflicted him with. And so that's why uh, I saw, you know, I, I have... My day job uh, uh, does not allow me to write history on a regular basis, at least at book length, but I wanted to get this volume, President Grant, reconsidered out. It started as an undergraduate uh, history thesis, and it was something I expanded on uh, during subsequent years, you know, during law school and immediately uh, afterwards. And uh, it's something that I'm glad to see. Uh, historians really have changed their perceptions uh, of his presidency, but I think there's a longer way to go. And I, it is also quite interesting and maybe frustrating that it took a good generation uh, after the civil rights movement of the 20th century, which some call the second reconstruction for historians to seriously revisit the premise, not only about Grant, but about others, who were uh, engaged in, uh, in, in those uh, Reconstruction efforts. Frank, let me, let's change the subject. Grant Monument Association, what is it, and what do you guys have on plan for next year, or this year? So the Grant Monument Association is a nonprofit that is named for the group that originally built and administered Grant's tomb uh, until it was turned over to the, ninth, uh, the National Park Service in 1959, uh, we reestablished a new Grant Monument Association uh, in 1994 at a time when the tomb was in really bad shape. It was being graffitied. It was being vandalized and neglected. And a quarter century later, we, we went from uh, dealing with horrendous uh, a desecration and a need for uh, for government uh, action to just sort of turn the uh, the tide to a new era in which we've been able to engage in collaborative educational programs with the National Park Service. We host a grant birthday dinner every year, which the grant the old Grant Monument Association did during the 1890s and the 1900s. So we revived that tradition. Uh, but at a site that had once enjoyed more popularity than the Statue of Liberty through World War I, uh, but had in recent years become much more obscure, we've seen to it that uh, there are educational programs at the site. We have wreath layings on the anniversaries of 
Ulysses and Julia Grant's birthdays and death anniversaries. We have talks to convey to people not only the sort of thing I just did in my discussion of uh, Grant's presidency, but all the many aspects, the many facets of his career that are significant to this country. Now, because of the pandemic, the tomb is now closed to the public. Uh, and I, for how long, I don't know. It's been closed since March, and I would not expect it to reopen anytime soon. However, in the interim, the National Park Service, with the GMA's cooperation, has put on, they do periodically put on uh, video programs that people could log in online to get the same sort of historical programming that they would if the site were open. And in fact, uh, that even includes wreath layings uh, in the absence of, uh, of a live audience. Uh, today, or taping this at least, uh, December 14th, which is the anniversary of Julia Grant's death. She died in 1902 on this day. And what we would typically do is have a wreath laying and a talk over at uh, her visitor center. Well, uh, today, the National Park Service aired a wreath laying that they had recorded where park rangers placed wreaths from both the National Park Service and the Grant Monument Association to mark that anniversary. And they showed that following a vignette about Julia Grant's uh, life. Now, in the upcoming year, we'll see. Time will tell whether we'll have these events in person or uh, or just uh, in a recorded form, you know, before a public sites like this reopen. But your listeners can tune in to C-SPAN 3, American History TV, on December 19th, which is this Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the Park Service, or excuse me, C-SPAN is going to be airing a colloquy that the, the GMA recently had between General Petraeus and the historian John Marsalek about the relationship between Grant and General William T. Sherman. Uh, this year was General Sherman's 200th birthday, so we thought it would be a nice uh, occasion for a colloquy about how the two men uh, helped secure Union victory. And we had done this, in, again, in the absence of uh, live events at Grant's tomb, and we were really pleased to see that C-SPAN picked it up. So those who uh, were not able to join us when we had this conference via Zoom will be able to watch C-SPAN on Saturday. Now, next year, we will see whether the Grant birthday ceremony will take place. It's at least tentatively scheduled to take place on his birthday at the Union League Club. We'll see if regulations allow it. But we are looking forward to the year after that, the Ulysses S. Grant bicentennial. Grant's 200th birthday will be in 2022. And in preparation for that, there are a number of things that we uh, are trying to do. One of them is an initiative to not only do maintenance that needs to be done at Grant's Tomb, and we have on our website, grantstomb.org, uh, we talk a little bit more about this. But if you go right to our homepage, we had sent a, a letter to public officials in 2019 mentioning a number of 
measures that the site needed to uh, to be in, to just find itself in better uh, condition than it currently is in. Uh, I'm talking about security that needs to be enhanced, uh, some discoloration and peeling paint uh, that has occurred inside the tomb, uh, some granite that has been showing wear outside of the tomb, uh, other items of deferred maintenance. And we'd also like to do something special like put up a fitting visitor center. Right now there is what we consider a makeshift visitor center, which is better than what they had 20 years ago, which was nothing of the kind, but it only has room for a few exhibit panels and only enough restroom space for two people at any one time. We would like to see a really fitting visitor center uh, put up uh, uh, to help educate those who visit the tomb who need an introduction to Grant's life and legacy, unlike those who did not need any such introduction a century ago. Um, so that's on our list. We're going to, uh, and we have been trying to promote it with public officials who I know about other things on their minds, but since this letter was sent out, there has been congressional legislation passed that will create a fund to uh, help catch up on deferred maintenance at national parks. We're hoping that that includes national, uh, that, that includes grants too, among others. We have what we call a grant sites initiative that for other sites that are dedicated to Ulysses S. Grant or other locations where there might not be a historic structure that exists anymore, but that should be properly marked with a historical marker, we would like to see uh, those sites uh, given their due. And so in 2022, we'll be planning uh, a few marker, uh, either marker dedications or, or plaque installations or monument restorations. Uh, we were quite upset to see that uh, Grant's monument in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park was toppled during the summer. We're pushing for that to be restored and then in Congress, we would like to see a couple of measures in addition to those that would help spruce up Grant's tomb. Uh, we're proposing that a commemorative coin be minted, as was done for Abraham Lincoln's 200th birthday uh, during the 2000s. And we're even proposing that a bill be passed as a resolution that would posthumously uh, promote Grant to the with the title of General of the Armies of the United States, which was the title that was held at one point by John Pershing when he was an active duty officer, but was conferred on George Washington during the bicentennial year of 1976. We're hoping to see the same thing done for Grant. And so uh, that combined with what I hope will be a, a nice series of scholarly uh, and other events uh, surrounding Grant's tomb in the year 2022, I hope will really mark a fitting celebration of Grant's 200th birthday. Frank, we're running out of time, but in the last minute we have, can you please give us where you can, you know, find out more about the Grant Monument Association? Yes, if you go to our website, grantstomb.org, there's no apostrophe there. Uh, you can find all of this uh, information. We also do have a Facebook page under the Grant Monument Association and a Twitter feed at Grant's Tomb. 
All right, Frank, listen, thank you very much for your efforts to give U.S. Grant his proper place in history. And thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thanks so much for having me. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at catholicscomehome.com. Thanks again to Frank Scaturo for, you know, educating us about President U.S. Grant. Now, Beth, you share something in common with Julia Dent. Can you tell the audience what it is? Yes. Um, I was a member of the New York City chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, and she was one of the founding members. And um, her love of history and wanting to preserve the Union is a story. I mean, she and her hubby loved each other as much as any two people ever did and they worked to preserve the union and they loved it and you know i mean one of the things is he mentioned in the talk he was talking about the fact that you know they were going to air a colloquy that they had with general petraeus and the historian john marzalak you know dad and i because we're associated with the grant monument association actually got to tune into that and it's it's one of those things one of those rare things that you really just don't get to see an event like that very often it's it's an opportunity you don't want to miss um to see you know first off someone of the renown of general petraeus and then a historian of the stature of john marzalak it really is something to behold and so and it's not the only thing that they offer so it's a good thing remember that this month has been giving month for us so we've covered medical stuff we've covered food we've covered uh and now we're covering history so remember you know as, as christmas comes around and as Time goes on. Just think about what kind of charities you want to give to, because there are a lot of good ones out there for a lot of good things that 
whatever you're interested in, whatever you consider important, I'm sure you'll be able to find something that's worth giving to in this season. And in a year like this, I think everyone needs a little bit more charity in their life. Okay, and just in reference to that, we got a email from Father Paul. He's coming back. Yeah. What is it, on January 9th he's coming back to the January States? January 9th, Father Paul will be back with us in the States. Right, okay, right. so we'll have him on the show soon thereafter. And, you know, I know a lot of people are going to be interested in uh, his observations, and I know he's going to be a little down because he always felt that Donald Trump did the best for the Christians in the Middle East. So I know he's going to be a little down right now. But we'll talk it, and he's always got hope. He's got a lot of bad things happening to him, but he's always... Never give Preserving. up. Remember that he, his mission was blown up in that horrible explosion in Lebanon. So pray for him. Pray for everyone he was helping. Um, thankfully, no one was seriously hurt. There were some minor injuries, but everyone seemed to get out okay. So, you know, you've got to take the small blessings where they come. All right. Next week, we'll be back, and we'll talk about some more charitable giving. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.